The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello. In the early 1800s, the world received six novels by a young woman, and literature was never again the same. Here was a writer whose works stood comfortably next to the greatest writers of the past, the epic poets and dramatists of Greece, the Renaissance Italians, the Elizabethan playwrights, and they have stood the test of time, with Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and Emma and Northanger Abbey and Mansfield Park and Persuasion being as well-known and celebrated today throughout the world as they were in the author's day in her narrow corner of England. I'm talking about Jane Austen, of course, one of our heroes here at the History of Literature. But if we care about Jane Austen, we care about those who influenced her. Which brings us to one of her biggest inspirations, the novelist Frances Burney, also known as Fanny Burney, or Madame D'Arblay, who was about 23 years older than Jane Austen, and whose novels Evelina and Cecilia were popular in their day and helped Jane Austen develop her own novelistic craft. And Jane Austen acknowledged the debt with praise. This is from Northanger Abbey. Quote, And what are you reading, miss? Oh, it is only a novel, replies the young lady while she lays down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame. It is only Cecilia or Camilla or Belinda. Or, in short, only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humor, are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. End quote. Cecilia, Camilla, Belinda, two of those novels were by Frances Burney. But who was Frances Burney? How did she come to write these novels, and what were they like? How did they change her life, and what ended up happening to her? The story of Frances Burney, today, on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. You might have noticed that we did not have an episode on Thursday. And yes, that means we are returning to our pre-quarantine routine of one episode per week, for the time being at least. We were trying to keep you all company during those darkest of days as the world stayed home. But thankfully, there is now some light at the end of the tunnel. I'm still pretty much stuck at home. Not vaccinated yet, but I've gotten busier than ever and I'm looking forward to the easing up of the podcast episodes. I think the quality will also improve. I hope so anyway. Two episodes plus raising kids plus a full-time day job kind of took their toll, but I'm not complaining. It was a good year, and there were certainly many things to be thankful for and are many things to be thankful for, including my audience of listeners. And let's face it, we're all fortunate to still be here, and that's not something I take lightly. This has been a very 
very difficult year for the world. And I hope you and your family are as safe as can be and as healthy and that we all turn the corner looking forward and don't end up sliding back into that awful pandemic as it was at its worst. Okay, Frances Bernie, what a great story. She comes from an amazing family, and she was herself pretty amazing. She was, said Virginia Woolf, the mother of English fiction. And while she might not today be as well regarded as Woolf or Austin or the Brontes, not many people are, frankly, but we can nevertheless celebrate her as a writer, a novelist, a diarist, and of course we owe her a debt for being a woman writing novels just at the time when a great woman was about to start writing some very great novels herself. Who knows if Jane Austen would have written without Frances Burney there to pave the way for her, show her that it could be done. We just do not know. I'd like to think she would, but we don't know. We do know that she admired Frances Burney and revered her books. Okay, let's take our first quick break and then jump right into the history of Frances Burney. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Frances Burney was born in 1752. Her father was famous and ran in artistic circles. He was a composer who was perhaps even more famous for his scholarship. Oxford granted him a doctorate for his works on the history of music. Let's hear a little bit of Charles Burney's composition. 
get the idea. That's a fugue if you didn't recognize it. And the important thing about Charles Burney for our story is that his house was a magnet for writers and thinkers and painters and artistic types of all kinds. He moved the family to London. For a while, they lived in a house that had once belonged to Isaac Newton, of all people. And they were visited by the leading intellectuals of English society at that time, Sir Joshua Reynolds, the famous painter, Edmund Burke, the playwright Richard uh, Sheridan, a composer named Harriet Wainwright, and of course, our old friends James Boswell, and above all, Dr. Johnson, along with Hester Thrale, a familiar name to all those who love Dr. Johnson, Mrs. Thrale being one of the heroes of that book, Life of Johnson, and indeed of Dr. Johnson's life. We're deep in the 18th century now, just to keep you oriented. This is the century in between playwrights and poets like Shakespeare and Dunn and Milton on the one side, that's the 1600s, and poets and novelists like the Romantic Poets and the Jane Austens and Charles Dickenses of the world on the other. That's the 1800s. What we have in the 1700s are poets like Alexander Pope and John Dryden, and we have the great critic and essayist Dr. Johnson, and we have the rise of novels. Robinson Crusoe was published in 1719, Gulliver's Travels in 1726, Tom Jones in 1749, Richardson's Pamela was published in 1740. That was an epistolary novel or a novel written in letters. And the form, uh, the form of the epistolary novel was spoofed in 1741 with Henry Fielding's Shamala. Tristram Shandy was published in 1759, which also was kind of a metafiction look at... Uh, novels. So by the time we reach Francis Burney as a child, born in 1752, we are in a world where people are reading a lot of novels written mostly by men, but which often take as their subject the moral development of a young man or woman as they make their way into the world. Many of these are told through letter format, and indeed, that's what Evelina does. Francis Burney's first novel, as we will soon see. Frances was considered the least promising of Charles Burney's six children. Unlike the others, she didn't learn the alphabet until she was eight. Scholars today believe she may have had some kind of dyslexia. And we see from the rest of her life that she was sort of a devoted and also determined reader, reading methodically and steadily like someone with something to prove. Plutarch's Lives was on her reading list. Shakespeare, histories, famous sermons, all of these were... Uh, works that she encountered and read, wrote about, and of course, the novels of the day, which were read by many, including many women. It was the sort of family where success was common. Her brother James became an admiral who sailed with Captain Cook. A sister was a writer who married a famous naval officer, and her brother Charles became a famous classic scholar. After her mother died when she was 10, when Frances was 10, the family moved Brady Bunch style into a new house with their stepmother and her three children, and one of those girls became a successful novelist as well. And of course, Francis's father was famous, Dr. Burney, he was called, 
and they were surrounded by other famous people, including a family friend named Samuel Crisp, who had been a mildly successful playwright, who was a bit frustrated, and who, in spite of which, he encouraged Frances to write by inviting her, when she was young, to write him letters about the famous people who came to visit. These letters, some of which were published later, are some of the best glimpses we have of these luminaries. Frances had an excellent eye and a lively wit herself. Very charming prose style. To give you a a flavor of it, let's hear her description of Dr. Johnson. This was written when she was in her early 20s, and the great man Johnson was then in his 60s. Shockingly nearsighted, she writes, his mouth almost constantly opening and shutting, and his body seesawing up and down. In the passage where Dr. Johnson visits, he largely ignores the company because he's poring over the books owned by Francis's father and, quote, almost touching them with his eyelashes, end quote. Good stuff. Irreverent. An irreverent look at this august and formidable man, the man who wrote the first dictionary in English of the English language. It was no wonder that Daddy Crisp encouraged letters like these from Frances, and no wonder she turned to writing novels and was successful at it. But she had to do so covertly because of her status as a woman. She believed her father would disapprove as well, so she underwent some subterfuge. I should say that her father seems to have been a decent guy. This was just the general attitude toward women writers of the day. He was known for being kind and charismatic. Frances's mother, by the way, we kind of skipped over her, she also seems to have been kindly, known for her empathy. But after she died when Frances was 10, the Bernie children did not get along well with their new stepmother. They used to make fun of her behind her back. On the other hand, they later viewed the stepmother as having brought them close together, that the six children had bonded, in a way, due to their unification and their disapproval of their stepmother, who had been kind of mildly mean. Okay, so where were we? Frances had long been writing plays and poems and diaries and letters, and now she wrote her first novel, Evelina, or The History of a Young Lady's Entrance into the World. That's the full title. She wanted to see her manuscript published, but how? Her father would likely disapprove, and publishers might not be all that enthusiastic either if they knew it was written by a woman. Steps had to be taken. First of all, one problem was she had helped copy out her father's history of music, so she she copied out Evelina again a second time in a disguised hand in case someone at the publishing house recognized her handwriting. That's pretty impressive. Sort of wonder what the difference was. Might be able to find that online sometime. I don't know. I used to use my left hand to disguise my handwriting, but that always turned out comical, and I could never have imagined doing tens of thousands of words that way. Da Vinci could do it, apparently. And did you know that President James Garfield could reportedly write a sentence in Greek with one hand and a sentence in Latin with the other at the same time? Can you believe that? Maybe that's not true. Maybe it's just a legend. If it is true, we should have made him king. (laughs) A genius. But then... Wouldn't have made a great king. He got shot, and they couldn't find the bullet, and Alexander Graham Bell was brought in with a newfangled metal detector to try to find it, and that didn't work. And poor President Garfield died. 
back to Francis Burney. Even with that disguised manuscript, she couldn't meet with the publisher, so she sent her brother as a go-between, and he wore an old coat to disguise himself. And it's kind of funny to read the letters where they ask things of the publisher, like, would you be willing to read and publish a manuscript without ever seeing the author? And questions like that. <laughs> I mean, what was the publisher thinking? And she sent her cousin as a go-between at another point, and he was also posing as someone else, someone not himself. And the publisher, I mean, were the, <laughs> were the publishers really fooled by this, or did they just think, oh, this is probably a book that was written by a woman in your family. It just seems so obvious. Today, when you say, I'll meet you in a tavern at dark with the manuscript, you must not ask me any questions about the author. On the one hand, I suppose the book could have been written by some spy or some famous man like the king who needed to disguise his identity, or it could just be one of the tens of thousands of women who were reading novels, which seems kind of obvious in retrospect that a few of them would have written one and would have disguised their identity like this. Anyway, Francis was excited that the publisher, was a man named Thomas Lowndes, wrote a letter back to her that called her Sir, or as she put it, elevated her to a man. We, of course, need to read that word, that charged word, elevated, as the thought of a young woman who wanted to publish her novel at a time when a woman might be rejected categorically due to prejudice more than literary taste. Frances was 26 now. Evelina was published and was a huge success. was satirical about London society, and London society gobbled it up. Everyone read it, and it became a great game to try to guess who the author was. And here's one of the things I love about the story of Evelina. Her father guessed that it was written by his daughter. How wonderful is that? What was it like for Dr. Burney reading Evelina and thinking, I bet Francis wrote this? The clue he had was not all that subtle. The published version was dedicated to him with an ode expressing his daughter's filial love. One version said, friend of my soul and parent of my heart. And the other uh, version said, author of my being. Anyway, when he read the dedication and realized that the book was by Francis, his daughter, his eyes filled with tears. We want to get to the later novels and the rest of Francis Burney's life. She worked for the Queen and later her husband worked for Napoleon. So. Kind of a neat trick. But before we move to that, let's take our last break and then spend a little more time with Evelina. Okay, Evelina, published in 1778. Francis was 26. It tells the story of a young woman whose father was an English aristocrat, but he's a bit of a wretch. So Evelina lives in the countryside until she turns 17. She then goes to London and starts to make her way through the layers of 18th century society. There's a satirical tone to it as she summarizes what happens to her, what has happened to her, and she makes some comical mistakes on her way up, although gradually she starts to learn what she's doing and becomes more confident. She's a charming protagonist and letter writer, and the prose is light and highly readable. It's the sort of book that has a Frenchman who's called Monsieur Slippery, because he once fell in the mud, and a Scottish poet whom Evelina rescues when she thinks he's committing suicide, but instead 
He was deciding whether he should commit an armed robbery. Evelina has an English grandmother who who pretends to be French. There's a retired Navy captain who despises foreigners and minor noblemen who are full of themselves and give wildly flattering speeches. I'll read you a bit of Evelina to give you a flavor of the prose, but then I also want to read the preface because it should give us a sense of how Francis Burney, young Francis Burney, viewed novels and novel writing. First, this is from chapter 77 of Evelina. Evelina in continuation, Clifton, October 7th. You will see, my dear sir, that I was mistaken in supposing that I should write no more from this place, where my residence now seems more uncertain than ever. This morning, during breakfast, Lord Orville took an opportunity to beg me, in a low voice, to allow him a moment's conversation before I left Clifton. May I hope, added he, that you will stroll into the garden after breakfast. I made no answer, but I believe my looks gave no denial, for, indeed, I much wished to be satisfied concerning the letter. The moment, therefore, that I could quit the parlor, I ran upstairs for my calash, but before I reached my room... Mrs. Selwyn called after me, If you are going to walk, Miss Anvil, be so good as to bid Jenny bring down my hat, and I'll accompany you. Very much disconcerted, I turned into the drawing-room without making any answer, and there I hoped to wait unseen, till she had otherwise disposed of herself. But in a few minutes the door opened, and Sir Clement Willoughby entered. Starting at the sight of him, in rising hastily, I let drop the letter which I had brought for Lord Orville's inspection, and before I could recover it, Sir Clement, springing forward, had it in his hand. He was just presenting it to me, and at the same time inquiring after my health, when the signature caught his eye, and he read aloud, Orville. I endeavored eagerly to snatch it from him, but he would not permit me and, holding it fast, in a passionate manner, exclaimed, "'Good God, Miss Anvil, is it possible you can value such a letter as this?' The question surprised and confounded me, and I was too much ashamed to answer him. But, finding he made an attempt to secure it, I prevented him, and vehemently demanded him to return it. "'Tell me first, said he, holding it above my reach, "'tell me if you have since received any more letters from the same person.' No, indeed, cried I, never. And will you also, sweetest of women, promise that you never will receive any more? Say that, and you will make me the happiest of men. Sir Clement, cried I, greatly confused, pray give me the letter. And will you not first satisfy my doubts? Will you not relieve me from the torture of the most distracting suspense? Tell me but that the detested Orville has written to you no more. "'Sir Clement,' cried I angrily, "'you have no right to make any conditions, "'so pray give me the letter directly.' "'Why such solicitude about this hateful letter? "'Can it possibly deserve your eagerness? "'Tell me, with truth, with sincerity, tell me, "'does it really merit the least anxiety?' "'No matter, sir,' cried I in great perplexity, "'the letter is mine, and therefore I must conclude then.' said he, that the letter deserves your utmost contempt, but that the name of Orville is sufficient to make you prize it. Sir Clement, cried I, coloring, you are quite, you are very much, the letter is not. Oh, Miss Anvil, cried he, you blush, you stammer, great heaven, 
It is then all as I feared. I know not, cried I, half frightened, what you mean, but I beseech you to give me the letter and to compose yourself. The letter, cried he, gnashing his teeth, you shall never see more. You ought to have burnt it the moment you had read it. And in an instant he tore it into a thousand pieces. Alarmed at a fury so indecently outrageous, I would have run out of the room, but he caught hold of my gown and cried, Not yet, not yet must you go. I am but half mad yet, and you must stay to finish your work. Tell me, therefore, does Orville know your fatal partiality? Say yes, added he, trembling with passion, and I will fly you forever. For heaven's sake, Sir Clement, cried I, release me. If you do not, you will force me to call for help. Call then, cried he, inexorable and most unfeeling girl. Call, if you please, and bid all the world witness your triumph. But could ten worlds obey your call, I would not part from you till you had answered me. Tell me then, does Orville know you love him? At any other time, an inquiry so gross would have given me inexpressible confusion. But now the wildness of his manner terrified me, and I only said, Whatever you wish to know, Sir Clement, I will tell you another time. But for the present, I entreat you to let me go. Enough, cried he. I understand you. The art of Orville has prevailed. Cold, inanimate, phlegmatic as he is, you have rendered him the most envied of men. One thing more, and I have done. Will he marry you? What a question! My cheeks glowed with indignation, and I felt too proud to make any answer. I see. I see how it is, cried he after a short pause, and I find I am undone forever. Then, Letting loose my gown, he put his hand to his forehead and walked up and down the room in a hasty and agitated manner. Though now at liberty to go, I had not the courage to leave him, for his evident distress excited all my compassion. And this was our situation when Lady Louisa, Mr. Coverley, and Mrs. Beaumont entered the room. Sir Clement Willoughby, said the latter, I beg your pardon for making you wait so long, but— she had not time for another word. Sir Clement, too much disordered to know or care what he did, snatched up his hat and, brushing hastily past her, flew downstairs and out of the house. And with him went my sincerest pity, though I earnestly hope I shall see him no more. But what, my dear sir, am I to conclude from his strange speeches concerning the letter? Does it not seem as if he was himself the author of it? How else should he be so well acquainted with the contempt it merits? Neither do I know another human being who could serve any interest by such a deception. I remember, too, that just as I had given my own letter to the maid, Sir Clement came into the shop, probably he prevailed upon her by some bribery to give it to him, and afterwards by the same means to deliver to me an answer of his own writing. Indeed, I can in no other manner account for this affair. Oh, Sir Clement! Were you not yourself unhappy, I know not how I could pardon an artifice that has caused me so much uneasiness. His abrupt departure occasioned a kind of general consternation. Very extraordinary behavior, this, cried Mrs. Beaumont. Egad, 
said Mr. Coverley. The baronet has a mind to tip us a touch of the heroics this morning. I declare, cried Miss Louisa, I never saw anything so monstrous in my life. It's quite abominable. I fancy the man's mad. I am sure he has given me a shocking fright. End quote. Isn't that fun? <laughs> That's Francis Bernie. <laughs> if you're interested, I've read online some people who have read Jane Austen a million times. You read those six books over and over and over, and you look for something a little different. Check out Franny Bernie. Franny. Fanny Bernie. Why not? See if that appeals to you. It's kind of like uh, addicts when they're on uh, heroin and then they come off of it. They look for a little methadone. Fanny Bernie can be your methadone for those of you Jane Austen addicts who need a little break from your <laughs> from your main lining. Okay. Let's hear from the preface. Says Frances Bernie, still in her mid-20s and unknown. This is the 1770s talks about the writing of novels. This gives us a really interesting look at what a novelist thought about novels and what she was sharing with the world about novels in the preface to her first novel, Evelina. So, Evelina, this is the title page, Evelina or the History of a Young Lady's Entrance into the World, 1778, by Fanny Burney. And then the original preface says, quote, In the Republic of Letters... There is no member of such inferior rank or who is so much disdained by his brethren of the quill as the humble novelist. Nor is his fate less hard in the world at large, since, among the whole class of writers, perhaps not one can be named of which the votaries are more numerous, but less respectable. Yet, while in the annals of those few of our predecessors, to whom this species of writing is indebted for being saved from contempt and rescued from depravity, we can trace such names as, and then, interestingly, she gives some names, although she gives a footnote that uh, she includes Johnson, for example, even though she says he's not exactly a novelist. She puts that in a footnote. But she says Rousseau, Johnson, Marivaux, Fielding, that's the author of Tom Jones, Richardson, we talked about him already, author of Pamela. Fielding, by the way, Tom Jones's writer, was also the, the person who is believed to have written Shamala. And who else does she name? Smollett. Tobias Smollett. No man need blush at starting from the same post, though many, nay, most men may sigh at finding themselves distanced. The following letters, this is typical of these epistolary novels. They have to try to explain why they, how the person came in possession of these letters or why there is such a bundle of letters. So that's what she's doing here. It's a little bit of setup work. It says, the following letters are presented to the public for such by novel writers, novel readers will be called with a very singular mixture of timidity and confidence resulting from the peculiar situation of the editor who, though trembling for their success from a consciousness of their imperfections, yet fears not being involved in their disgrace while happily wrapped up in a mantle of impenetrable obscurity. To draw characters from nature, though not from life, and to mark the manners of the times, is the attempted plan of the following letters. For this purpose, a young female educated in the most secluded retirement makes, at the age of seventeen, 
her first appearance upon the great and busy stage of life with a virtuous mind, a cultivated understanding, and a feeling heart, her ignorance of the forms and inexperience in the manners of the world occasion all the little incidents which these volumes record and which form the natural progression of the life of a young woman of obscure birth but conspicuous beauty for the first six months after her entrance into the world. Perhaps, were it possible to effect the total extirpation of novels, our young ladies in general, and boarding-school damsels in particular, might profit from their annihilation. But since the distemper they have spread seems incurable, since their contagion bids defiance to the medicine of advice or reprehension, and since they are found to be to baffle all the mental art of physic, save what is prescribed by the slow regimen of time and bitter diet of experience, surely all attempts to contribute to the number of those which may be read, if not with advantage, at least without injury, ought rather to be encouraged than condemned. So there we go. There's a little more to it than that. I'm trying to see. I think I'm going to stop there. The She says, you can see where she's kind of apologizing. Not only is there an apology for this being an epistolary form, she's kind of apologizing for novels in general. She's kind of standing up for them as well. So let's talk about the epistolary form first. The, the epistolary novel is handy as a form. It's easy to write. Everyone writes letters, or everyone used to write letters. All you have to do is turn them into scenes, like the one that we heard, where there's dialogue conveyed. But you can also have commentary, running commentary. You can ease, you can easily adapt your letters to the point of view of your character, but you can also easily change point of view simply by having a different letter written by a different person. It's easy to see why the form was so widely adopted in the early days of novel writing. First person is just an easier technique to pull off than third person, like takes less technical skill, especially when there are not yet a lot of examples of masters of third person, like Jane Austen was as she was developing the form, or someone like Henry James who came along when the form was already developed and essentially provides a master class with his books. But there can be something tedious about letters as well, about the epistolary form. There's some throat clearing as writers say, I wrote to you yesterday, but now I'm writing again, so on. To make the letters believable, they usually don't just jump right into the scene. They usually have some, hello, how are you? At the beginning, third person, when you drop the epistolary form, third person doesn't really need that. All the, hi, I'm writing you now, here's where I am, I'm writing you from here, I wrote you yesterday, all of that stuff. You won't believe what I'm about to tell you, and so forth. All that can just melt away. The author can develop a closer relationship with the reader, directly with the reader. There isn't the need to act as if this is a bundle of letters from one character to another, and the reader is sort of overhearing a conversation. And so, it's nice to see that Frances Burney dropped it for her next novel, Cecilia. We'll hear a little bit from that novel, too. A very famous paragraph for reasons maybe beyond a little bit, just uh, beyond their 
function in the novel that had some literary history to it. But anyway, let's understand what happened to Frances before we get there. After Evelina was published, she became a celebrity in London. People loved this book. Even Dr. Johnson, who was not a huge fan of novels, but he loved the book and would return to it often and could recite passages from it. Frances Burney, he said, had a gift for, quote, character mongering, end quote. And if that phrase, that's the kind of phrase that makes me love Johnson. If that's not enough to make you want to learn more about Dictionary Johnson or Boswell's famous biography of the doctor, I don't know what will. Character mongering. Beautiful. People loved that the book satirized the foibles of society and that it had a good message and it helped young people improve, or so it was believed. That's what that's the other part in that preface to the novels. That the reason why I read that prologue from uh, Frances Burney that we just heard, the start to Evelina, you could hear her apologizing for novels and for people who have their their nose in a book and for the generation of people in schools who were growing up reading novels. That was part of the dialogue of the day. That was both the criticism of novels, that they would corrupt the youth potentially, and the praise of them. And ah, yes, there's fine moral instruction in this novel. It's strange to think that novels would have that power. I'm guessing that the older people would see the young people who were immersed in these novels, absorbed by the stories and the trials and tribulations of the characters, and the older people would think, this has to be having an effect on those minds. Look at the influence that these books have on them. They can't get enough. Well, let's hope that the effect is a good one, or at least not an awful one. Much the same way that we oldsters might look at video games today. It's not that we're trying to be fuddy-duddies about it. We're just doing our best, even as it seems to turn out that kids do just fine. Whether we're talking about rock and roll, where parents said that too. Oh, what this, it, all this in their ears, on their brains. Or rap music with their lyrics. Oh, this must have an effect. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we ban it? Should, can we stop them? Look, nothing is as important to them as this music. Or watching TV had the same dialogue or using the internet or back in the day reading novels. Whatever the concern of the day is. A child in 1790 who had Tom Jones and Pamela and Shamala and Joseph Andrews and Evelina and all these novels piled up would be looked at with trepidation. Oh no. This wasn't how I grew up. Look at those novels. What if they're corrupting these people? These young people? The youth? And if a kid was... <laughs> those same books? Imagine if a kid was reading that pile of books today. Those same books. You'd think they were probably on the way to becoming some kind of Nobel laureate. Some amazing scholar. Some Nobel laureate for peace, maybe. Somebody who's reading Tom Jones and Pamela at that age. Hmm. Okay, so Frances was a celebrity now. This is where we are in our story with her. Evelina comes out. She's a celebrity. She loved being a celebrity. She loved going to meet famous people and then come home and write about them afterwards in her diary. It was all very exciting. In 1782, when she was 30, she published her second novel, Cecilia, which was also successful, though not quite as popular as Evelina. Critics found it a bit convoluted and difficult to follow. Once again, it was about a woman making her way through the world 
But this one had an interesting hook. Cecilia inherits money from an uncle, but with the stipulation that she find a husband willing to accept her name rather than the other way around. Plenty of men, it turns out, are willing to do it in order to get access to the money. But of course, Cecilia falls in love with a man whose pride won't allow it. So like I said, we'll hear a paragraph from that book later. In 1786, Fanny Burney was taken to meet the queen and she was given an appointment as the keeper of the robes official court appointment, which she did for four or five years. This was how she spent her mid-30s. She was not married yet. Earlier in life, she had turned down a marriage proposal when she was in her early 20s, and she almost married another man, a clergyman, when she was 33. Then she became this keeper of the robes, which paid well but kept her from her family. She was worried initially about the impact on her writing that such a position might have, but then she reconsidered because now that she was 34 and still unmarried, she thought that maybe some financial independence would give her some freedom to write. Actually, she did keep her journals during this period, and she met some potential suitors, but nothing worked out. She'd also written some plays, which her father objected to, fearing that they would besmirch her reputation as a novelist. And indeed, there's some evidence that he was correct in this. I think only one of her plays was ever produced in her lifetime, and it closed after one night. It was not successful at all. A lot of her plays were not even known until the 20th century when scholars found them buried among her papers. But she was a successful novelist and diarist. She married a Frenchman in 1793. Again, her father was not too approving of this. And once again, it's a little hard to blame him, given all the circumstances of the time. It was a marriage for love, but one that seemed kind of doomed. Frances had French blood on her mother's side. And the man in whom she fell in love was the dashing Frenchman General Darblay, who had been an officer during the French Revolution, which was very recent at that time. And he was aligned with the hero of the French Revolution, Lafayette. But now Darblay was poor, and he was Catholic, and he was in England uneasily as France was roiling in the aftermath of revolution. So all those are reasons why Francis's father was a little anxious about the Union, but Francis was in love. So they got married in 1793, and they had their first son in December of 1794. It was the only child that Francis would have, and then Francis saved the day economically with her pen, with a third novel called Camilla. War broke out, and General Darblay went back to serve in the government of Napoleon, and Francis joined him there a year later bringing her son, and France and England at that point went to war, and Francis was trapped in France for the next 10 years because of the war. While she was there, she developed some pains in her breast, which was diagnosed as breast cancer, and she wrote a brave account of the harrowing mastectomy operation that was performed. This was before anesthetics. I'm not going to read the description here, you can find it online. There's a paragraph. It might be as good as anything she ever wrote, and it's certainly as brave. It's a landmark in medical writing, really. She survived, thankfully. Uh, she wrote a fourth novel that was kind of a disappointment, and she finally was able to return to England 
and she lived a long life full of journal writing and letter writing before she finally died in Bath at the age of 87. She had written a journal for 77 years. At age 15, she had made a bonfire and burned all of her writings to date. There was an early novel in there, and there was her journals and other writings. Maybe it was because her stepmother had disapproved of her writing, or maybe because she, or maybe she thought she was vulnerable or exposed because of it in case they were discovered. Maybe she thought all of the plays and journals and poems to that point were juvenilia and not worth keeping. But it didn't take long before she went right back to it. And for the next 70 years, she wrote pretty much nonstop. Let's return to Cecilia, her second novel. Maybe not her best novel, certainly not as popular or well-loved as Evelina, but still popular and maybe more influential, at least for Jane Austen. Cecilia, as I mentioned, dropped the epistolary form, letting Francis Burney as author-slash-narrator take over the duties without the creaking machinery of letters, written serial letters, giving us the reason for the fictional enterprise. So here's what it sounds like. Listen for the words that are going to sound familiar. They are printed in all caps, by the way. The whole of this unfortunate business, said Dr. Leister, has been the result of pride and prejudice. Those are the two words in all caps, by the way, at least in this edition I'm reading. Your uncle, the dean, began it by his arbitrary will, as if an ordinance of his own could arrest the course of nature, and as if he had power to keep alive by the loan of a name, a family in the male branch already extinct. Your father, Mr. Mortimer, continued it with the same self-partiality, preferring the wretched gratification of tickling his ear with a favorite sound to the solid happiness of his son with a rich and deserving wife. Yet this, however, remember, if to pride and prejudice you owe your miseries, so wonderfully is good and evil balanced, that to pride and prejudice you will also owe their termination. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Francis Burney, a great figure in the history of the novel, both as an influencer and in her own right. Evelina is worth a read even today. And if you're excited by that, you can check out Cecilia and even Camilla as well. Some people like Francis Burney's diaries even better. They provide good company. Sometimes that's essential. Speaking of which... I hope you found this episode to be good company, dear listeners. It's certainly how I think of you, my good companions and friends. Happy we're here together. We are part of the Podglomerate here at the History of Literature and Lit Hub Radio. Learn more about that at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.